0: New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. Adolf Hitler infamously told his naval commander-in-chief, on land I am a hero, at sea I am a coward. But those battles on, under, and over the Atlantic decided the fate of the world every bit as much as those exciting tank battles in Europe and North Africa. Hello history lovers and welcome. I'm your host Dean Kariannis and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of that to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. I hope you'll go there and subscribe. I try to restore some of the greatness that we had back in the History Channel days. That's a place actually I was in talks to work at one point and that was a dream job back then in the mid nineties, right? Get in there and try to produce some of that great content. But over the course of time, the History Channel lost its way. We started to get more non-history content like Pawn Stars and whatever Ice Road Truckers is. So if you do subscribe there at our YouTube channel, I try to give this a little more of a documentary feel remind people of those good old days, and you can enjoy those and maybe share them around with a friend. Same goes for my columns in the Washington Times, where you can find some of my observations on today's current events through the light of the history I've picked up reading all these books behind me. And yes, I have actually read them. there, not just for show. Speaking of great reads, in this episode, our time machine welcomes back Simon Reed. He brings us his wildly enjoyable new book, The Iron Sea, How the Allies Hunted and Destroyed Hitler's Warships. In our History Author Show archives, you can find my previous conversation with Simon Reed. That's about this book here, if you're watching. It's called Winston Churchill Reporting, Adventures of a Young War Correspondent. Simon not only sent me a copy of this book, not only sat down and chatted with me about it, but he also was kind enough to thank me in it. So if you get a chance... Absolutely, pick up this book and then flip around inside and check out where Simon was kind enough to thank me, because that's always a charge for me as somebody who loves history when an author is, is willing to acknowledge that I helped them produce a great work of nonfiction. Simon Reed is a former journalist and he's the author of eight previous nonfiction books. One of them has just a great title it's called Human Game The True Story of the Great Escape Murders and The Hunt for the Gestapo Gunman. That's one of three works he has had optioned for film and TV adaptations. Simon has written in all sorts of places. You've seen his work in the San Francisco Chronicle in Publishers Weekly and Time Magazine. You can visit him at SimonReadwriting.com for more. That last name is R-E-A-D, by the way. And once you're there, you can connect through to his social media. He's on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram as am i okay now that we've boarded a battleship as naval observers let's go hunting for the enemy in the iron sea and here we are with simon reed he joins us to talk about his latest great book it's called the iron sea how the allies hunted and destroyed hitler's warships welcome back to the history author show simon
1: Thanks, Dean, for having me. Great to be here. Last time we did this, um, we could only hear each other. Now we can
0: right.
1: okay. see each other. And yeah, that's, oh, very nice. Thank about you. this
0: great book, right? Went to church yeah. reporting. Yeah. Uh,
1: but I do have a case
0: <laughs> of background envy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought we were going to go back and forth privately and compare which Churchill books we have that are the same, and which Churchill books are, in fact, different. And then we could trade. We could have a little Churchill book club. So, so yeah, you you're, you have them there though. You have plenty of books. To, to, well, what's yeah. funny is,
1: so my office is actually in a loft. I'm in my master bedroom right now. But my my office is in a loft outside. This is my wife's bookshelf in our bedroom. I I cleared her books off and put some churchill books on the top shelf for a background effect so
0: i bet she has all the lady churchill books that that kind of thing yes yes yes, uh, and yeah (laughs) (laughs) but this book is just as interesting and it does feature some winston churchill in, in it which we will definitely get to it's a look at the war that is often overlooked within the wider war and that's the war on the waves you have that word hunt in the subhead and for me, that, or that reminds me that war isn't just about, okay, two armies clashing when we see them on land often. The sea war is very much a hunt. And so this phase of the war, you write about here in the Iron Sea, and I wanted to kick off by asking you to give us a broad overview. What does that hunt mean to you? What does that word mean in the subhead, and especially the overlooked often Factor of air power what does this book tell us about what is a very real hunt and with very big stakes for the future of the free world the whole world absolutely
1: hunt not only appears in the subtitle it's littered throughout the actual narrative because the book is very much a cat and mouse story set on the high seas with diversions on land and up in the air and the book details the the search-and-destroy operations by the Allies to sink Hitler's four capital warships, Scharnhorst, Neisenau, Tirpitz, and Bismarck. And the overall strategy within the context of this book is survival, Allied survival, but primarily British survival. At this stage when the book opens, the war is Britain's to lose because the United States hasn't come in. I'm going to state the obvious. Britain is an island nation. Uh, In 1940, that saves her from the Nazi conquest, but it leaves her vulnerable to naval blockade and starvation. And Britain requires 23 million tons of supplies a year to feed her heavily rationed population and to keep her war machine going. So convoys coming into the country uh, are Britain's lifeblood. But not only that, convoys going out of the country are also vital to the war effort. Britain has an army in North Africa to supply. Britain is also in 1941 is sending convoys to Russia. I think people don't realize Britain actually sends about 4 million tons of supplies to Russia during the war free of charge. In fact, by the end of 1941, one third of the tanks on the Eastern Front are British tanks, which I didn't realize until I started researching this book. So the incoming of supplies to Britain and the outgoing of supplies are are vital to the Allied war effort. Vital to the war effort overall. And these four ships, the Scharnhorst, Neisenau, Tirpitz, and Bismarck, pose a serious threat to these lifelines. And so the book details the sometimes frantic effort to destroy these vessels. Um, you know, air power plays an incredibly important role in this effort, uh, particularly uh, where Scharnhorst and Neisenau are, are concerned. And for listeners who don't know, Scharnhorst and Nisenau, they're uh, some accounts describe them as battleships. Some accounts describe them as uh, battle cruisers. The difference between a battleship and a battle cruiser is um, they have the same sort of heavy armaments, but a battle cruiser will generally have less armor for speed and maneuverability. But Scharnhorst and Neisenau are the two most modern ships Germany has when uh, war is declared in September 1939. And they caused the British a whole lot of stress in the opening months of the war and throughout the first year in 1939, they go on a rampage and they sink some British patrol vessels. Uh, They take part in the invasion of Norway in 1940. They sink the aircraft carrier glorious with, with a huge loss of life there. And then they retreat uh, to port for uh, repairs. And then through February and March of 1941, they sink 115,000 tons of allied shipping, which to the British is an absolute catastrophe, because every ton is vital to the British, uh, British survival. Churchill describes that period, February, March 1941, where the Schoenhorst and Eisenhower are running rampant. He says it gnawed at my bowels at night. So it, this causes him great stress. After they do that run through the North Atlantic, they dock for repairs in the French port of Brest. And this is where air power comes in because in April of 1941, a RAF reconnaissance flight, flying over the port, just takes some random pictures, Guy flies back home, the pictures are developed, and they're studying the photographs, and lo and behold, in these images are the Scharnhorst and now, which are two of the Royal Navy's most wanted, and so this launches a a, uh, prolonged air campaign against the Port of Brest, which was a notoriously difficult target to attack, but British warplanes keep these two warships pinned down for quite a few months and prevent them from breaking out into the North Atlantic, the campaign comes at great cost to both German sailors on the ground and, and British aircrew. But air power does play a role in pinning these ships down, and air power will play a role later on in both destroying torpedoes and hunting down the Bismarck. But and I know that was we started at a high level and we kind of got down into the nitty gritty. But overall, <laughs> the book is sort of this desperate hunt for these four leviathans,
0: which the British were really desperate to destroy. Well. I liked your response there because you you have the same intensity that you have here in the Iron Sea. And what people would have felt at the time, they would have been saying to themselves, gosh, our lifelines being strangled. We're we're being starved. What are we going to do? Winter's coming, all the all the various things you have. We cannot feed ourselves. And because, as you mentioned, the British are an island nation. They're also a maritime people. They're used to having the Royal Navy be their steel wall around their country, which is uh, sort of what John Adams said. He said wooden walls when he first started really pushing for the U.S. Navy as president. So the moment comes where they are shaken because the ship goes down that they have so much emotion invested in that they are so proud of as this maritime people. That's HMS Hood. And that has to shock your power. To me, it's a, a feeling like what 9-11 was. I had a friend who described seeing the Twin Towers fall to a friend down in your neck of the woods in the great Southwest. And he said, imagine that, that the mountains were just gone outside Albuquerque. He said, that's, that's what it felt like. Someone had had the power to rewrite our skyline. So talk about the hood, what it meant to the British and how losing that ship impacted their collective psychology don't think you
1: can overstate what Hood means to Britain in the war and even in the years leading up to the war. It might be hard to imagine today sort of a machine of war inspiring so much love and, and devotion, but HMS Hood wasn't simply a, a warship to the British. She was a symbol of British pride, British naval might. She represented Britain's historical dominance of the waves, uh, they. Uh, she was launched in 1918. She went into active service in 1920, and for more than 20 years, she was the most powerful warship afloat. She had eight 15-inch guns. Um, she weighed in at about uh, 42,000 tons standard load, uh, standard weight, which means just the ship itself without any sort of supplies or ammunition. 42,000 tons fully loaded. She weighed in at 47,000 tons. And I actually just found out recently that not until 2017 when the Royal Navy commissioned the aircraft carrier HMS Elizabeth, uh, which was 65,000 tons since they'd never had a ship the size of hood since uh, HMS Elizabeth was recently commissioned so she was, she was a monster ship. She was also a goodwill ambassador for the British they sent her around the world on goodwill tours to foreign ports of call so she was known throughout the world, and she earned the nickname the mighty hood. Uh, Rightfully so, the um, the sinking of Hood it hits home for several reasons. First of all, because she is so loved. Multiple accounts of Hood where you talk, where you read accounts of people who either saw her on one of her ports of call or who served on her. One word keeps coming up to describe her, and that's beautiful, which is a strange word to use to describe a battleship. But there are numerous accounts about her. Describe her very graceful design. She had very sleek lines, and so from her, you know, by her grace of design, her power, her speed, she was. One account calls her the queen battleship up the seas, and there was an air of invincibility around her. That something this beautiful, this powerful, just couldn't be defeated. So when she sinks, it is a huge national wounding for the British, and and for several reasons, not just because of the reason we just talked about but because britain has long dominated the seas and in may 1941 when hood goes up against bismarck the british haven't had a very good war you know they've been their, their cities have been bombed they're they're heavily rationed their convoys are being sunk the war in north africa which is really the only land engagement they're engaged in at that time it's not going well they have no means of returning to the continent their air offensive against germany which becomes this obviously mammoth campaign, you know, inflicting unbelievable destruction It's still very much in its fledgling stage. So Britain doesn't have a lot of areas where it can flex its offensive muscle, but they can do it on sea. And so when Hood clashes against uh, Bismarck on May 24th, 1941, you know, Churchill knew that the battle was coming. He actually stayed up late into the night to hear how, how the battle was going. When Bismarck sinks Hood it's not just that Bismarck has sunk this symbol of British pride and, and British dominance. Is that it's just another piece of terrible news on this massive slag heap of tragedies that the British have, have already suffered. And because it was such a stinging defeat and in, in a way a humiliation, you know, the Royal Navy you know, to be defeated in this manner is why the Royal Navy throws every available ship. Into the hunt for Bismarck, and I, I can't remember the numbers, but in the book, uh, I list out one point. Yeah, you know, they had something like you know, f- five aircraft carriers, twenty-two battleships, fifteen destroyers. So I mean, it was just insane to, to hunt down this one ship. And so, it wasn't just the loss of a great British symbol; it was the loss. It it was what the loss represented. Just another defeat in a in a year that was just going very badly for for the British.
0: And. Huge numbers. What is it? Only three three, three survived, Yeah. Right? Out, so of, out just of, the uh,
1: ship. I think it was out of 1400 or 1500 crew, three men survived. Um, yeah, one guy, so Ted huge. Briggs, it's on. Yeah. One guy, Ted Briggs, he was the uh, signalman. He's, he's on the bridge and he talks about when the, the fatal hit, hit Bismarck or hit hood. Um, the ship started to list to one side. And then everyone thought, "Oh my God!" And then the ship slowly started to correct itself, but then faltered and started tilting again. Everyone knew, "Oh, this is it. We got. We got to get out." Um, One thing I should say is, Hood and Bismarck—they're actually, when you look at them on paper, they're pretty evenly matched. You know, at at full capacity with ammo and crew and supplies, Hood weighs in at about forty-seven thousand tons. Bismarck is about 50,000, but they've both got eight 15-inch uh, guns, so they've got equal firing power. Where Hood falls short is Bismarck is a recently built ship. She's got updated gunnery systems, targeting systems. She's got a rapid-fire gunnery system, all stuff that Hood didn't have. Also, Hood, she's heavily armored on the sides. Her decks are not. This gives her her speed. So Hood, uh, Bismarck fires the fatal shot. It actually comes from a downward trajectory and pierces her deck and blows up the magazine uh, storage. During the engagement between Hood and Bismarck, one of the survivors on Hood later said that the sound of Bismarck's incoming shells sounded like a freight train heading straight towards them. It was this screaming... Uh, whistling sound and the terrifying thing about it besides the noise was that you're on a ship. There's nowhere you can go. The only thing you can do is sort of flatten yourself against the deck and hope for the best. And this guy did, he, he dropped to the ground, covered his head. There was a guy next to him who did the same and the shell landed and exploded. And uh, afterwards uh, the guy looked up and the gentleman who'd been lying next to him had just had, had pretty much vaporized. But when the ship starts sinking, there are three guys on board. Ted Briggs manages to escape. He's on the, uh, he's on the Admiral plat- compass platform with the Admiral and the captain. He manages to get out. And the last thing he sees before jumping into the water, he looks behind him and he sees Admiral Holland. who was the commander of it sitting in his, sitting in his captain's chair with his head buried in his hands. And it's a really touching scene when you sort of read the way he describes it. And he jumps in the water. And then uh, two other guys, uh, a gentleman named, uh, Oh, their names are going to sit my mind now, but Bill Dundas, I think his name is, and another gentleman, they managed to escape, and they meet up in the water, and they're looking around saying, where's where's everyone else, where's everyone else, and they realize that out of the, you know, 1,500 men on board there, the only three that have survived, and it comes as a terrible shock.
0: The names are all in the book, certainly, The Iron yep. Sea, and as you can tell, you could hear the passion in Simon Reed's voice, and that's something I really value as somebody who's doing interviews. Sometimes I feel I sound a little more excited than the guest does, and then we, we get into it, and I say, come on, bring your passion. This isn't just an academic setting, even though we're, we're certainly talking about academic things at times. The Washington Examiner's review of your book brought to mind exactly that spirit. They called it an enjoyable testimony and said the iron sea will appeal to military history readers both expert and casual so Simon I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you put this book together, how do you whittle down stories like that one you just told of the hood and those men in the water, how do you make sure that that casts a wide net so it's not just people who are real scholars who have a wall full of books behind them about World War II, but the casual reader too can also pick up the Iron Sea and say, wow, this is a part of the war I never heard before, never really read about, didn't think about, but this is, is well told. It's keeping my interest and I'm enjoying it just like I would any other book of a sort that I do enjoy. The subject matter
1: for this book lends itself well to sort of lent itself well to the field of popular history. Let's put it this way. This is not a book about politics. It's not a book about strategy or tactics or the disposition of fleets. It's a book about these massive machines of war, sort of slugging it out on the high seas. It's about suicidal raids in midget submarines and daring low level air attacks and commandos storming enemy ports against, you know, sort of tremendous odds, So the subject matter really sort of bakes in the excitement from the get go. And I had a very specific intent when I wrote this book, I should say, just before I started writing this book or just about the time I started writing it, I went to see the movie Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's movie, which where he obviously takes a a, a historical account, a historical event, and he fictionalizes it and he turns it into, he turns Dunkirk into a survival thriller and you don't when you watch that movie you don't have to wait long for the intense moments it's one right after the other someone's escaping a dra- you know sinking ship then someone's in like a you know water surrounded by flames and then someone's being dive on i mean it just comes fast and furious and i when i left the theater i you know like i said INC was already kind of i was starting work on it but i thought i really liked the approach nolan took with dunkirk it would be interesting to take that approach with Iron Sea, where I knew the book was going to have these big combat, to use a movie term, action set pieces. What if I construct the book in a way where the story just moves along at this rapid fire pace and the reader doesn't have to turn a whole lot of pages to get to the next explosion, which sounds kind of lowbrow. But you know, it, that, that's the sort of book that I kind of want to read, because the book is about the intensity of combat. And the, the inherent uh, human drama that is, that is part of that. And so that's sort of the, that's the aim I went for. And I was kind of nervous about taking that approach, but it panned out because the book, the reviews that the book has landed have all been great. You know, the Publishers Weekly and Kirk because in library journal and you know other they, they've all they they've given it one the best reviews i've ever received for a book so i'm like oh great i i took i took the right approach the challenge did come in when you take that approach and you're reading the first-hand accounts of the the guys who took part in these operations and, and these combats you want to use everything and so that was the challenge because this book could have just you know, I think the funnel manuscript was like 90,000 words. I mean, it could have been like a 130,000 word book easily. Um, but the challenge was finding good stories that, um, uh, that kept the momentum uh, going. Sometimes you can add too much stuff into it. You know, you can add too many firsthand accounts and then sort of things get bogged down. So it was trying to find that, find that balance. But uh, the descriptions that these guys gave, you know, the Imperial War Museum, in london they have a audio archive where they have a lot of first-hand recorded first-hand accounts after the war they interviewed veterans who told their stories that was marvelous and not just reading the written word of what some of these guys wrote in combat reports or personal papers but hearing them tell the story was was fantastic especially when you hear two of the three survivors from hood tell their story i mean it gives it gives you goosebumps it's it's fantastic and so what I wanted to do with this book is sort of present not only like a an action narrative. I, I want to I want people to think this is a history book. You can read on the beach. Right? It's it's, it's like a thriller set at sea. But I really did want to drive home the drama in, involved. And you know when you when you have an action based narrative, you know you don't want it to get cartoonish. this is real life. These are real events. There was a calamitous impact on the men who took part. And I wanted to I wanted to get that
0: all across. You made me want to do something I don't usually do, and that's just reach back and grab the book for people watching on YouTube. You can see this is a nice length of a book. It could indeed be a beach read, although you're going to be watching the water, by the way, if you if you read this on the beach, you're going to be a little worried. But you can see already, that's a nice small book. It's the story of these men. You get to know them, and in a real short area, and I'm always fascinated. I always love the editing, because if you look behind me, you see, for instance, there's a uh, book up there on James Monroe, and when I was walking around with that book, I think it's 480 pages or something. People would say, "Who reads that many pages on James Monroe?" It just doesn't seem. Even at the time, they said he was boring. (laughs) This book, you you get to know these guys, and you you feel them. You're in the water with them. You you talk about the cold, for instance, in the water, and say uh, it was good for some of them that ideally the the death came fast because they were in the water. They didn't they didn't suffer out there, and that's something that you feel right away. We can all identify with them, and we can identify with them also if they're on the other side, and that's something that we don't usually think of. We're used to movies where the Germans are just the cartoon bad guys, and they get slaughtered by the thousands, and we're meant to just cheer. Here, the Kriegsmarine is the least poisoned by Hitler's Nazi ideology, and they do do things like they don't shoot people in the water. They're, they do try to rescue people. I've talked about this with other authors. And as soon as you say that, it sounds like you're, you're defending the Nazis. Oh, my God, you said that they did good things. So it feels uncomfortable just to say, but it is true that this was the area that was the least infected. They did want to try to save people after they had sunk them. They weren't just gunning them down. Very different from that land war that I mentioned. And maybe that's part of the reason it is indeed overlooked until a great book like The Iron Sea comes along. So how do you feel about that? How did you how did you go about meeting the men in the Kriegsmarine and saying, hey, these are not the your papers, please, for you, the war is over and and gunshot cartoon Hollywood Nazis. But these were real sailors who cared about what they were doing and very different from that land war, especially since Hitler wasn't meddling with them, making them making them carry out his whims you raise some really good points and hitler
1: there's a, there's a scene in the book where hitler comes to inspect bismarck before she goes off to sea and he is not that interested in his big ships and in the surface war he is more interested in his military conquests on land and the thing about you know movies and cartoonish nazis and all that sort of thing. You're absolutely right. I think when you write a book like this, write a book on the Second World War, it is very easy to paint or write in shades of black and white, where all the allies are good guys and all the Germans are, you know, these raving fanatical Nazis. In this book, that is, that is not the case. Um, one of the things that really struck me When I was working on the Iron Sea, was the respect that both sides of the naval war had for one another. There was a mutual admiration from the sailor uh, by sailors on both sides for their counterparts. And it sounds weird, but it actually does come through, even in the heat, even in the heat of battle. When Hood sinks, when Bismarck sinks, Hood. Um, The navigator's assistant on Bismarck was watching through his viewfinder, and he sees it explode. And I quote him in the book. He, He wrote later, he said, the force of the explosion felt like a cyclone that enveloped my entire body. He said, the only thing I could do was pray for the men on board and hope that my children never ever experienced anything like that and so there was a sense of pity for the opposing side when when one of the ships sank when bismarck is eventually sank the germans you know the the uh germans who survived the uh, sinking of bismarck they jump in the water they're terrified that the british are going to shoot them you know drag them on board their ships and shoot them for sinking hood that doesn't that doesn't happen um at all uh British bring the uh, German sailors on board. They're treated extremely well. And the Germans who captured British sailors treated them extremely uh, uh, well too. And there's a, there's a scene in the book where there's a small British ship that's returning from a raid against the French port of Saint Nazaire, And it's got about you know, 20 or so uh, British commandos on board and some sailors. And they encounter a German destroyer called the Jaguar. And a firefight erupts between this destroyer and this tiny little British motor launch that really only has one gun in the front. And it's the British are hopelessly outgunned. It's a it's a savage, savage battle. And the German guns annihilate much of the British ship, kill a lot of the British sailors on on board. And then the British surrender and the Germans bring the survivors on board the Jaguar. The Germans salute the survivors and the captain of the Brit- of the german ship invites the captain of the british ship to his cabin for a glass of brandy and to commend his men for the br- for bravery and the german captain even later recommends that one of the gunners on board the british ship be recommended for a uh, victoria cross which was a very sort of uh up thing so there there is this mutual respect and i think when you write this book one of the things i wanted to do was like i said it's an action-based narrative it's easy to get lost in the explosions and the special raids and the submarines and the ships exploding and all that sort of stuff. But if you do that, there's no sense of, you don't get the sense of tragedy of war. And I think if you show the humanity on both sides, not just the allied side, but the German side, because there was, and like you said, I know it's sometimes it's weird. Like you're saying, the Germans were like nice people, but yeah, you know, it, it, in the context of this book, yes, there, there, there was humanity on that side. And I think by showing that it sort of really underscores what a waste war can be, Um, you know, the human lives that uh, are destroyed, the suffering that happens. And so I think it's important that you sort of bring the humanity um, to the forefront when you, when you do something like this, that was a long answer, but hopefully you get the gist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I certainly do. And I am hanging on your every word as I hope everybody is at home. Who's enjoying my conversation with Simon Reed. He's author of the iron sea. How the Allies Hunted and Destroyed Hitler's Warships. You can visit our guest at simonreedwriting.com, where you can navigate through to his social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We're both fortunate to be linked on both of those, especially since sometimes our spam filters don't play nice with each other. And Publishers Weekly, they write of the Iron Sea in a starred review, drawing on firsthand accounts from Allied and German sources. Reed recreates the demise of each German warship in gripping, often poignant prose. World War II buffs and naval history fans will be spellbound." Well, I could certainly agree with that word spellbound, Simon. So tell me how that felt, that such high praise from Publishers Weekly You mentioned that you're getting more praise, more favorable reviews for this book than any of the other ones that were also equally great. Certainly, we talked a lot about at the time Winston Churchill reporting, and we we felt that more people should have been passionate about this book at the time. I know I did just as an outsider, and here you're the author. So when you read what people like Publishers Weekly are saying about the Iron Sea, how do you feel as an author? Do you Think of certain spots, like you said, those action set pieces, those candy bar scenes, as I've heard them call in fiction. You say to yourself, "Yeah, I really, I really nailed that part. That was really good." Do you feel the story makes you proud when you sent it out into the world? Now that it's in the hands of readers, when the Publishers Weekly review landed, you know, when
1: a book comes out, I went online, I set up Google alerts for my name and the the title of the book, and then I got a ding one day that. You know something had posted online. I looked and it was Publishers Weekly. I'm like, oh my God. Um, because they review the books before it, it even comes out. So you you want the trade publications who review the book before the release, you really want good reviews in those things because otherwise it's almost like the kiss of death before the book even comes out. And when I clicked on the review, the first thing I saw was the little red star at the top of the review. And I, it, I mean it was it was phenomenal because I've never received a star review in Publishers Weekly before. And it was it was great. So, you know, I know some authors say, "Oh, I don't read reviews. I don't care about reviews." I'm not one of them. I, I put tremendous weight <laughs> on reviews. Um, I've been very fortunate in my career that the vast majority of reviews I've received have always been very kind and, and nice. But the reviews for Iron C sort of have really kind of surpassed anything that I've I've had before. So, as a as a as an author. And a storyteller, it was it was wonderful. Um, you asked, you know, were there sort of things in the book where I thought, oh, you nailed it. Um, the book as a whole, I'm incredibly proud of. I don't usually go back and I'm trying to. I want I don't want to say this and sound like obnoxious or you know, like full of myself. I don't only go back and and read my my books once they're published. I, I I put them on a shelf we have down in the living room, um, and then. I I ignore them. Iron Seas, the one book I have, where occasionally, you know, late at night when I've had a few scotches, I'll, I'll pull it off the shelf and I'll, I'll I'll flip through and I'll I'll browse some of the pages. There are I'm I'm proud of the entire book, but there are two specific episodes in the book that I'm I'm really proud of. And when Hachette, my publisher, sent me the page proofs and I sat down to read them, um, there are two episodes where after I finished reading it, I actually did think to myself, I. I did good <laughs> uh, <laughs> in these areas. And then, normally I don't always, and again, I'm not trying to like blow my own horn here or anything, but you know, I think sometimes uh, if, if, if you're proud of something you've accomplished, it's, it's all right. Uh, and the two things I'm really proud of in iron sea is the story of the hood and, and Bismarck, which I think stretches out over three or four chapters in, in the book. The, uh the story of Hood hunting Bismarck, uh, I was really proud of. I think there's a lot of atmosphere and tension in there because you really get, everyone. you hear about the story of Hood and Bismarck, everyone hears about the ships fighting and sinking, but uh, a lot of times you don't hear about the tension on board the ship before the encounter and you know, shortly after midnight on May 24th, you know, everyone on Hood goes to battle stations and the announcement comes over the speaker to put on clean underwear to avoid infection and wounds and you know the men are nervous and terrified and up on the uh, admiral's platform where the captain and the uh, admiral holland are it's pitch black except for the glow of the instruments and the embers of the cigarettes the men are smoking and when hood makes radar contact with bismarck i think it's like three thirty in the morning you know there's the tension really builds and it's a stormy Arctic night and the ship's being thrashed by seas and it's pouring rain. And Ted Briggs, one of the three survivors, he, he left a wonderful account just of the um, not only the fear he felt, but the fear of showing fear. You, you didn't want to let your, your colleagues down. And he talks about um, the way the men are sort of pacing around nervously, waiting to establish visual contact and then visual contact with Bismarck's established just before six o'clock in the morning as this little dot on the horizon. And then shortly after that, all hell breaks loose. But the buildup of of the, um, uh, the tension before the actual ships clash, I was really proud of. And then the actual battle itself between Hood and Bismarck, which only lasted six minutes. Uh, six minutes after they meet, Bismarck fires the fi- fires the fatal shot, and then Hood sinks in three minutes. I mean, forty seven thousand tons gone. But during that battle, the book cuts back and forth to what's happening on Hood, and then back to what's happening on Bismarck, and you get the reactions of the Bismarck crew and the reactions of the Hood crew. And I really like that. I thought there was kind of a cinematic quality of the back and forth, and I thought it works. Really well. So that's one thing I was really proud of. The other one I'm proud of is details an event that I don't think is really known here in the states, and that's the raid on San Nazaire, uh, which was a French port, which happened on March 28, 1942, and it was an attempt by the British to knock out the only port on the French Atlantic coast that was large enough to anchor a ship the size of Tirpitz. And uh, it was called Operation Chariot, and it involved 661 British commandos and sailors storming into a German-held port uh, defended by 5,000 German soldiers. I mean, it was it was suicidal. And the British took an old American destroyer, and they disguised it as a German ship. They filled its hull with I think it was four tons of explosives, and their plan was to ram the ship into the port. Uh, And then all the commandos would jump off, wreak havoc through the port, the ship, the the destroyer would explode, destroy the dry dock, and then the commandos would hightail it back to England. It does not go that smoothly. The British are able to ram the ship into the dry dock. Uh, The commandos storm ashore, most of the commandos, well, not even most, like a good number of the commandos storm ashore, but it turns into a hellacious night of desperate fighting. It spills out into the town of San uh, Nazareth, becomes building to building, bloody hand combat. And it is really, it's called the, in, in Britain, it's called the greatest raid of all time. And when you read about it, you understand why, because it was so audacious and crazy in its planning. And the British not only had this Amer, uh, American destroyer packed with explosives that they rammed into the dry dock, they also had 12 motor launches that carried these little assault teams that were going to follow in the wake of the destroyer. And they had to travel six miles up the lower estuary under, you know, German fire and spotlights and everything else. And these motor launches that the commandos are on are made of wood with their gas <laughs> tanks on top of the deck. And so these ships are being shredded by machine gun fire. You know, commandos are being wiped out. Gas tanks are exploding. The river is on fire. Men are falling in. They're burning. They're drowning. It's just an amazing uh, isn't amazing like you'd have to be crazy to want to volunteer or you know, to take part in something like this. And of the 611 men who took part, only 227 make it home. 169 are killed. Uh, and then 200 plus are taken prisoner. That, by the way, is an example where we talk about respect on both sides. The Germans really admired the British for their audacity, and the day after the raid, they actually the Germans reported it out on German radio, and they actually said the British are to be commended for their daring and bravery, and the Germans even applauded some of their British prisoners af- after capturing them. So it was it was it was quite a remarkable thing. But that I'm also really proud of. And my dog's barking in the background. So, <laughs> that's
0: okay. He's excited. See that? Even He's dogs like it. He's dog. always that's excited. How, that's how great the Iron C <laughs> is. Even dogs like it. But <laughs> <I know. laughs> he won't be chewing on it. He'll chew on one of the you other. He won't be chewing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but you mentioned it, and we—I mentioned earlier Churchill, Winston Churchill, reporting, and what you talked about there is a quick aside because Churchill's the kind of guy that will take over an interview if we let him, right? But there's there's plenty of him as prime minister here and of course he had been first lord of the admiralty in the great war and that's the kind of daring raid and the the kind of chance taking risk taking that he embraced and in the period of Winston Churchill reporting right as you know well encourage people again to pick up the book but he goes and he says I'm going to escape from the prisoner of war camp maybe then once I do I can break into an army I'll come back I'll spring all the British soldiers we will arm them then maybe, you know, if one man can do it and one man can get 20 men, then maybe by the end of it, he has himself storming Pretoria and winning the war single handedly. And that, that kind of boldness really comes across here in the Iron Sea on the British side because they're having their greatest asset challenged. They lose their greatest ship when they lose HMS Hood. And so, They need somebody there with some bold thinking, bold tactics. It's going to okay. bold tactics, put the right people in charge. He is the entire government. So people who enjoy reading about Winston Churchill and being inspired by him certainly pick up the Iron Sea and you'll get your fill of that kind of swashbuckling that makes him so riveting.
1: Yeah, he um, he's 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 very much part of the book. It's interesting, though, because we are used to seeing him as the defiant war leader and you know the cigar and you know the the two-fingered victory salute but in this book you actually you see him stressing out (laughs) he he was gravely concerned about the war at sea the u-boat menace was his biggest fear these surface raiders plagued him constantly and he developed an obsession i think you can call it an obsession with the battleship Tirpitz, which was sister ship to Bismarck, <laughs> Turpitz spends most of the war anchored in Norway. She's a deterrent. She serves as a deterrent against Allied invasion of Norway. Not that the uh, uh, Allies were ever going to do that, but Hitler you know, wanted her there in case there was any plan to do that. But Hitler was also terrified of losing Turpitz. He, you know, by late in the war, he, he you know, it, Schoenhorst and Eisenhower you know, they're they're sort of out, and Turpitz is sort of like the lone queen of the North, and Hitler did not want the embarrassment of losing that ship. And Churchill absolutely obsessed on on that ship. As long as Tirpitz was afloat, Britain's lifelines, even with the United States well in the war, even with the Allies on the continent, D-Day having been a success, Churchill wanted the ship gone. Because as long as she was there, you know, convoys were in trouble. Britain's lifelines were... um, at stake, and there, there's a great scene in the book where he receives a notice from the Admiralty uh, talking about Turpitz, and the Admiralty referred to Turpitz by her full name, the Admiral von Turpitz. And Churchill responds back and says, "For God's sakes, you know, Admiral von Tirpitz, that's a waste of ink, paper. Um, let's just refer to her as the Beast." And so that's what um, that's what Turpitz became. Um, but yeah, he he's obsessed with uh, the destruction of these ships. And I, I think you could actually argue that Churchill's fear of Tirpitz, Tirpitz actually waged a psychological war on the British. I think it's safe to say she was, she did pose a, a major threat if she ever put to sea, but the Germans never really had any plans to do that. But of course the British didn't know that. So even just anchored in Norway, not really doing anything, she was a very effective weapon. And you know Churchill keeps demanding air raids against Tirpitz there's uh this crazy midget submarine raid against uh and that 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 was another thing in the book where i was reading it going you know i don't know how these guys do you know they're in these little three-man crew submarines and the conditions in them are horrible they leak they you know the 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 guys in these submarines are getting seasick they're puking all over the place they got like their ankle deep and vomit sloshing around i mean it's just you know like oh my god I just not, not, for me. Um, but so he, he, <laughs> Churchill authorizes all these sort of crazy daring operations against, um, against Terpiz, you know, the British manufacture a special bomb because Terpiz is anchored up against a, uh, in a fjord with a mountainside buyer. So the British, uh, devise a bomb that you, they can sort of like drop on the mountainside and then it rolls down the mountain. and Hopefully will slam into the ship. And that doesn't work. It does do some damage, but it doesn't sink the ship. But, not until Tirpitz Ter- uh, is sunk in 1944 is, is Churchill for, fully relieved. And even before Tirpitz is sunk, the British do sort of mortally wound her. I mean, they apparently knock her out of the war. But even then, Churchill's like, not good enough. Yeah, she's she's still she's still afloat. I want her under. And so they did have to keep going back and knocking her down. But um, yeah, the the war at sea in these ships and the menace to the convoy lines, it really was Churchill's. Uh, greatest greatest concern
0: and that does that that comes out in the that's very clear in the book Can we just talk about winston churchill reporting that that plays a role that fact the pow camp he hates being closed in and he hates being on the defensive and that's exactly what he's forced to be in britain we have to be on the defensive I mean, you could tell that's something that just drives him nuts he doesn't want to be i have here two Cigars that at some point Simon and I will have to get <laughs> my scotch. I mean, <laughs> this this isn't coffee that I have in here. <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> we've talked about history many times over over scotch and cigars across the continent. But this this history is just. So exciting and exciting for Americans too. I think it's something worth mentioning is that the Kriegsmarine has so much success in the early days of the war against American shipping that they call it the happy times. They describe it as a turkey shoot. America hasn't dimmed the lights yet on the coast and they can't believe it. These German U-boats are coming up. They can see the lights, the Ferris wheel on Coney Island, right? And they're saying, what the heck? Send send more U-boats, send more U-boats. And that's one place where Hitler... Thank God that he was a coward on the seas because he's reluctant to exploit this obvious opportunity he has. But in our White House, in our war effort, the head of our war effort, our commander in chief, Franklin Roosevelt, he's hiding how bad it is. And the press is helping do that. And I think that's one reason why Americans may say, well, the Iron Sea, that's not really America's war. I'm not as interested in it. I I, I know enough about the European side of the war. But we're very much in this. The U.S. is very much at risk here. They, they taught my dad when he was in Fort Lee, New Jersey, right across the George Washington Bridge uh, from from Manhattan, you know, they were watching for ships and planes. They had those little cards. It was real. They were terrified they were going to blow up that George Washington Bridge. Things like that. So the, the Iron Sea is definitely an American story too. We have a we have a role in this. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, even before America
1: comes into the war, uh, the war is Britain's to lose, which would have had incredible ramifications for the United States. And even after the US comes into the war and you know it's, it's sending supplies and men overseas, these ships didn't um they didn't discriminate in their in their targeting. You know, American convoys, uh American merchant seamen were uh victims to uh the Kriegsmarine. So it's not just a British and German thing, it's very much a uh German and uh American conflict. Um As well, And so I think, you know, another aspect I think that should appeal to readers, you know, in in this country, in the States, hopefully, is that when we do talk about the Battle of the Atlantic, and that's what the Iron Sea is, it's, it's, it details a component of the Battle of the Atlantic. But usually when we talk about that, we talk about um, the U-boat menace. Everyone knows about the U-boats and rightfully so they were, they were a major threat, but I'm hoping that, you know, readers who come to this book we'll find uh an aspect of the uh atlantic campaign that they weren't fully aware of you know when we talk about na- uh, naval engagements in, the, in world war ii in general and, and big naval campaigns obviously a lot of the tension is focused on the south pacific which was you know ob- obviously uh massive american um uh naval operation but the engagements in the atlantic were some were just as vicious and and, and just as intense and i think sometimes it does get overlooked, um, for whatever reason. Maybe because it's it is predominantly uh, a British sort of offensive um, campaign. So I, 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 you know, hopefully, this will turn some people onto it and uh, prove not just educational, but you know, primarily entertaining. In the in the end, you know, you want to shed some new light on stuff, but you just want people to be entertained and i I got an email from uh someone not too long ago just saying you know the the pages just kept turning and i just thought that's
0: great that's music to my ears yeah (laughs) that's what you want to hear right yeah yeah, definitely
1: there was an american played a pivotal role in the hunt for bismarck because the um you know the british sent up an observer plane to try and uh track bismarck down after she sunk hood and um the pilot was was an american pilot who uh who spotted her
0: so well, the cover does say allies, the setback but does say allies. Yeah. So it's a reminder that we are part of this. And yeah. I think if that helps people identify, I mean, for me, my mom was in London under attack by the blitz and here, my dad is watching the waves there in New York Harbor. So I always felt connected to it, but I think, and I think anybody, if you look for a hook in it, but also a human story. And I wanted to close with a human story that you close the iron sea with. And that's with the raising of HMS Hood's bell in 2015. At a ceremony, Princess Anne strikes that bell eight times. And you describe that as, quote, a call from the past to remember those who sacrificed their all on the merciless sea. And I noted there that the, the foe is the sea itself. And this is part of the reconciliation that I found in the Iron Sea, a reminder that now the germans are 80 years our our allies and so it's definitely it's definitely time to, to be able to look past that and we some of us have an obsession with that nazi culture and with the war and it's very easy to find it still alive and in our minds you know somebody stopped me on the street of new york and asked for directions as a german accent i feel a little bit bad if that's the first thing that you hear because we've been steeped in it so much it is definitely a stereotype this book restores some of the honor to the men who were not Nazis, at all, not party members that were out there on the sea that were trying to still be honorable to British seamen. So, I wanted to ask you to make your final pitch. Why should readers pick up the Iron Sea to meet these sailors on both sides to get a clearer picture of this fight to prevent the Germans from crippling that lifeline to the USSR, to the UK, from America, and really just to enjoy a great story? I think readers and authors should pick up the book. Um, I would
1: say my pitch for reading the book, you actually said something which just struck a chord. It's it's a war story, but it's a human story. One of the things I wanted to do when I set out to write this book, and I started doing the research and learning more about the opposing side, was to show the human element, the human impact on both sides, that the suffering was in equal measure uh, by both sides in this conflict. And so... What I would say to people on why to buy the book is number one, it explores I think a subject that gets short uh, short thrift. It, you know, the Bell of the Atlantic, like I said, it usually focuses on the U-boat. This focuses on an aspect that we don't usually talk about: the big surface ships. Um, I think it's a story of not just war, but I also I'd classify it as a as an adventure story. There's just amazing tales of bravery on both sides in this book and sort of human endeavor and resilience. And I think that uh, from the quotes used and some of the stories that uh, are related to this book, I think it does a great job in showing sort of the humanity on both sides. And um, like I said earlier, just kind of driving home the overall tragedy that, that war is. I mean, we, we can get wrapped up in the flag and be all patriotic and, you know, rah, rah, rah. But in the end, you know, war is it's human waste. And, um, and I think this book sort of drives that home. Um, That said, you know, I hope people who come to it, just find a really exciting action adventure story. And they walk away with it with not only respect for men on both sides, but um, they just walk away uh, from it, thinking that they've just read a really good, exciting page turn.
0: That's well, a hard Simon, question. That's a hard question that. to it answer. You know, like... <laughs> well, uh, you did. You gave it your best. Job. I thought you did an excellent job. <laughs> at it. I hope people will pick up the Iron Sea because you did the hard work of researching and writing this book. So we don't have to worry that now you can't put it into words. Your book stands here <laughs> on my bookshelf, your bookshelf. Many like it. People want to take it down, check it out. Light, light yourself a cigar, pour yourself a scotch as, as Simon has, and just enjoy it. Get to know this, very human story, this part of the war that is so easy to overlook, new perspectives. I mentioned FDR, for instance, and great, Simon was able to go back despite the press lockdown and not a great first draft of history, as they called the news, and bring us the stories from American perspective, British perspective, had to, had to go to Germans, they're usually writing in German, speaking in German, as Germans do, found us all of that to bring us this really well fleshed out story great as a beach read great as a bourbon read great wherever you are for, for do a you pick read. The- yes. <laughs> <laughs> i was going for alliteration you're a writer you should know that no, no, anyway. so, oh sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a great read a great book bourbon books beach whatever you do pick up the iron sea. you will definitely enjoy you'll be hooked as soon as you dip your toe into the water of that first page simon reed thank you so much for joining me today best of luck with the book thanks so much dean appreciate it cheers again the book is the iron sea how the allies hunted and destroyed hitler's warships as always you can find the amazon link to purchase your copy at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode by buying a book through us you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine Coming like usual. My thanks again to Simon Reed for joining us and for bringing to life the war on the waves in World War II. Visit our guest at SimonReedwriting.com. Again, that last name is R E A D. Once you're there, you can navigate through to his social media accounts. Those are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can find me as well. And also, please do check out our YouTube channel where I hope you will subscribe to watch future conversations like this one. That's it for this installment of the history author show. I hope you'll join us for our next all new interview right here on iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoyed this trip into yesterday until that next journey into the past together on behalf of Simon Reed. Thanks so much for time traveling with us today.